0: Welcome to ETF Working Lunch, an ETF.com podcast in partnership with women in ETFs. We get together every other week and talk shop with some of the smartest women in the ETF business. I'm Cynthia Murphy, here with my colleague, Lara Krigger. Hello, everybody. And today we have a really fun show. We are talking about direct indexing, non-transparent ETFs, and all sorts of interesting trends in the application space with Shayna Sissel, Chief Investment Officer at Spotlight Asset Group. Welcome, Shayna. Thank you so much for having me. We're excited you're here. So before we dive into investing, and we have a lot of cool things to talk about today, um, we wanted to briefly talk about your career. Like many people this year, you lost your job during the COVID crisis. And But it became known that a single tweet about that loss landed you a new job. Um, Was that surprising to you? Uh, Do you think social media now is the new face of what networking looks like in in the business space?
1: I I do. I lost my job. I I was laid off from my job uh, in 2018, and I was unemployed for seven months, and it was the hardest seven months of my life. It was a constant struggle, and I really, really never wanted to go through that again. So when I was laid off as a result of uh, the coronavirus epidemic that we're experiencing right now from my position at Orion, I had nightmares that it was going to be the same thing. But when I lost my job in 2018, I swore to myself that I would build my personal brand and my network in such a way where I would be a known enough entity that I would never be unemployed for seven months again. And it appears that the work that I put in and the networking that I've done to to build my personal brand really did pay off in that respect. Because when I did put out that tweet that uh, seems to have become almost famous, if you will, I got a tremendous response from the Fintwit community. Many, many people reached out to me about job opportunities, but the one that really stuck out and I knew from the get-go was going to be the perfect spot for me was this chief investment officer opportunity with Spotlight, and it is absolutely the best thing that has happened
0: to me in my career. Well, it's a, it's for sure an, an inspiring uh, result that we all hope we get to be so lucky. <laughs> so personal brand, everybody. Personal brand. I feel extremely fortunate. Like I said, after
1: being unemployed for seven months in 2018, I couldn't imagine going through that again. But on the flip side, there was some comfort in knowing that I had lost my job as a result of the pandemic, and that there were support systems that had been put in place through our government and authorities in terms of unemployment, where it wouldn't have been the same type of experience had it lasted longer in duration. I do feel extremely
2: blessed with how things turned out, though. That's true. That's true. Do, do you feel like, I mean, you're such a... um You are a fairly well-known presence in the Fintwit community, which we should um, back up a step. Fintwit, for those who've never heard of the term before, um, is short for financial Twitter. Uh, It's kind of an unofficial uh, gathering of some of the sharpest minds in the financial industry. Uh, We all just kind of get together and, and... Tweeted each other online. I don't know how else to to put it, but it's um it's a really kind of incredible community of collaborative competitors, uh and um it's wonderful. So if you're on Twitter, um just look up the hashtag fintwit and you might you might uh, what you find might surprise you. So um but I guess my question to you, Shana, is um do you feel like now, um especially now that we are all working at home, we're all constantly online um does a financial advisor does a financial professional kind of have to be part of this at least if if not fin it, um just some aspect of the financial social media sphere i don't even know what you want to call it um you know do, do we have to be extremely online uh nowadays just to meet clients network and so on I do think so. I'm not sure if you do it as much
1: for the client aspect of it, although certainly having an online presence will help build credibility if your clients are doing any sort of detective work to find out who you are and what you do. I do think having a personal brand and having brand recognition can be helpful. I myself, it's it's funny to me, I hated Twitter. I've been a member of Twitter since 2009, and I actually had never liked Twitter as a social media platform until I discovered FinTwit, and it just completely changed my user experience on the platform. And ironic as it may seem, most of the people that I interact with on Twitter I've met in real life. One of my closest friends in the industry I started interacting with her on Twitter, and then at WealthStack Stack last year, she just walked up and introduced herself to me, and we have been thick as thieves ever since. Yeah. Uh, and we we've started our own podcast, and it, it's just been really tremendous in terms of being able to network and get to know your peers and exchange ideas. And the the entire FinTwit community is just it's. it's braces each other supports and really lifts each other up and if any person on financial twitter has any sort of stumbling block career-wise they help out and one of the things we've tried to do as a community is build the network for even people who aren't active so through some of the interactions i've had with other women in the community whether it be through linkedin or twitter Um, We've done some monthly Zoom women of FinTwit Zoom calls where we've really had an opportunity to talk about struggles we're having in the industry, how and help each other overcome any obstacles that we're seeing. And that has really I know the guys have been having FinTwit poker and it's been truly a way to build your network at a time when everybody is quarantined. And I think it's been a great outlet for a lot of us, especially those of us who have children, who have this need like our children to socialize. And it really has allowed everybody, even those who aren't necessarily as active as others, to get to know each other and help each other through all this. And sometimes that can mean as a financial advisor, another financial advisor who may you know, geographically be far away might have somebody who's looking for an advisor in your area and they prefer to deal with someone locally. And s- the opportunities that can come out of leveraging social me- media in a meaningful way are there. Obviously, from a regulatory perspective, you have to ha- be cognizant of how you leverage fi- uh, 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 social media. But ultimately, I think it's really important in this day and age with everything that's going on in the world and the barriers we have to be able to see each other and interact in person, social media has become a huge part of all of us staying connected
2: through mm-hmm. everything. So shall we
0: talk investing? Absolutely. When you, we wanted to talk a little bit about direct indexing, which uh, I know a lot of people think as the next possible big disruptor to ETFs themselves. Uh, when you were at Orion Advisors, uh, you worked on the firm's uh, direct indexing solution now at Spotlight, you're managing their model portfolio lineup. Um, both direct indexing model portfolios have strengths, have weaknesses. Uh, we would love to hear from you, uh, given your experience with both. Um, what do you see as the strengths and weaknesses of, of either wrapper uh, or strategy, if you will? And you know, how does an advisor go about choosing between direct indexing or a model portfolio? Do they have to choose? Can you do both? Walk us a little bit about Uh, through what's on, on the table here?
1: I think there's a lot of positives about both, to be honest. They have logistical and operational considerations, especially as it comes to account size and client suitability. In terms of direct indexing, I, as a portfolio manager, felt strongly that direct indexing would absolutely disrupt disrupt the ETF space in that the benefit of the personalized tax management and personalized filters, ESG, Catholic values, whatever it may be, for the larger clients made a ton of sense. It certainly is a step up from indexing. It's slightly more expensive, but ultimately for the tax management the tax benefit and the customization aspects it makes a lot of sense the reason direct indexing is becoming such a huge part of the industry and such a disruptor right now is really about technology because it's such a customized solution in order to really have add value you need to be able to trade and manage the accounts on the individual account level scaling that for accounts, it didn't make sense until recently to do that for accounts smaller than a million dollars. It just wasn't logistically feasible. No different than any sort of institutional separate account. You don't run them operationally, logistically. You can't do it for small accounts. It just didn't make sense. But as technology has made it easier A lot of firms have built out platforms that allow advisors to either build their own or to outsource, which is Orion's platform offers both options, to do direct indexing for their clients. And the potential solutions are limitless. Most people use them for just traditional indexing, uh, optimization, and tax management, and that makes sense. But... Here at Spotlight, we're spending some time focusing on more focused strategies, whether it be income oriented or more small cap, or we want to have a quality bias, all of those things are possible in the direct indexing universe. And the account minimums have shrunk as a result of the technology improving efficiencies. It is never going to be a solution for accounts that are on the smaller side. The smallest minimum in the industry, I believe, remains Orion's product Astro, and their minimum account size is fifty thousand. That's a far cry from previously; it's tr- traditionally been a million. Uh, it had gotten as low as two hundred and fifty thousand, but now the lowest minimum I've seen in the industry is about fifty thousand, and that's just fifty thousand in the S and P five hundred. So when you think about it from a portfolio diversification standpoint, that's still a sizable piece of um, of assets. So that's really the major downside of direct indexing is no matter how good the technology is, to be able to do it in a meaningful way to add value to the client, account size will always be somewhat of a hindrance.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I kind of want to um, touch on that point a little bit more because... For, um, you brought up two, uh, specific use cases for direct indexing, um, in terms of A, ESG, right? The implementation of ESG investing and B, um, tax management or really fine tuning your tax management. And it's, uh, you know, for, I think younger investors or investors with less of an asset base walking in, um, You know, the younger guard of investor really cares about ESG uh, to an extent that, um, you know, they're they're the ones driving a lot of the ESG adoption in the space. And um, tax management for them, uh, savings of a couple of percent can be substantial in terms of their personal finances. So it's kind of a shame that direct indexing just isn't going to work for people with such small... You know, with small uh, asset bases, that you have to kind of build up to, um, you know, to to access this technology, this product technology. Um, but I guess that's where model portfolios can come in, right?
1: Exactly, model portfolios can play that role where. Your advisor is potentially outsourcing or here at Spotlight, we manage some of our model portfolios in-house where we're picking and choosing the underlying investments and and having a tactical bend. We're managing them actively. Uh, That allows for some of our smaller clients to benefit. We have ESG-focused models where we're able to build those for our clients. And there's scalability there. So we can work with asset managers. So even a client who may not have a ton of assets, because we as a firm have a certain bulk of our assets there, we can get better pricing. We can get into fund share classes that are more advantageous from a pricing standpoint. And we can also, in many ways, manage around tax considerations. I do think it's important, I I know I touched on direct indexing, how technology has allowed us to more efficiently manage those portfolios and bring down the minimum account size. I want to make sure that I point out that technology has limitations in that regards. Having managed these portfolios myself, once you get to those lower account minimums, it is very hard to implement the optimization and the tax management in a meaningful way. Now, many people have said the ability to buy fractional shares can help mitigate some of those issues. However, fractional shares in and of themselves have their own problems, and many Large trading systems don't necessarily work with fractional shares well. So there's certainly a chance that the development and technology around fractional shares could make those minimums even lower. But again, having managed low minimum portfolios in a direct indexing optimized way for tax management, ESG and the like, it is significantly harder to do that without having trading errors or having uh, rounding problems cash rounding issues, once you get to those smaller account sizes, it becomes more tedious and those problems happen more often just because the overall trading systems and the manner at which we implement the portfolios can't be done in a way to not fall into these problems like I I mentioned.
0: But beyond, uh, beyond account size as a, a limiting factor here, if you're an advisor who's trying to decide whether direct indexing or a model portfolio is the best choice for a given client, um, what's your advice on, on how to go about that? I think the major benefit to direct indexing
1: lies less in the more focused strategies and more in the index strategies I think as an advisor, when you're looking at the different options out there, you want to think about how you want to build portfolios for your client, where you can add value. We at Spotlight talk a lot about risk budgeting. And so direct indexing can make sense for some of our larger clients is the foundation of which we can build our more focused, more active uh, alternatives, liquid alts and less liquid alternative strategies can be paired around a core indexing strategy in which we can leverage direct index technology to benefit that. So as advisors, you have to think about how you want to build your portfolios and where you want to focus your time and efforts to add value for your clients. There are just some places where it's hard to do that. Everybody knows that large cap managers have a harder time beating their indexing indexes so indexing your large cap exposure can make more sense so i think they both have a place in a client portfolio it really depends on what the value added and the value proposition is for the advisor and how they're building their portfolios for their clients
0: well talking about value proposition um let's talk about non-transparent tts value proposition um, would you consider using them? Do you think they, they offer something that transparency hasn't yet?
1: Absolutely. I would absolutely consider using them. If you think about it, mutual funds are essentially non-transparent. Uh, you only get the holdings at most monthly. And there's a reason for that. And there are a lot of strategies where transparency is not only not advantageous, but It could actually be harmful to the ability of the portfolio manager to manage the strategy. And so I'm totally open to non-transparent ETFs. I think in the space like liquid alts and in fixed income, they make a lot of sense. And there's not a lot of really good options in those two spaces right now in the ETF world. But non-transparent makes it more likely that we'll start to see more entrance into that space, which is a good thing. Non-transparent to me, simply, that doesn't mean that you never know what they hold. They're still 40-act vehicles. They're still required by the regulators to report holdings at certain intervals. It just means that in terms of intraday, you won't know necessarily what they're holding, but do you need to. You want to be looking at what's the underlying philosophy, is the manager executing that philosophy, are the returns that you're getting in line with what your expectations are. And in many cases in the active space, many active managers, Fidelity, for example, American Century is another one, they haven't necessarily offered ETFs of some of their more popular and better performing strategies because of the transparency concerns. And this resolves that and makes it more likely that many of those types of strategies will be available in an ETF wrapper. And that's good for investors.
0: Well, what I think is interesting is in, the, um, sorry, Lara, just in the, in the liquid alt space, um, I've heard before just this notion that, you know, it's a space that's very complex and sometimes adoption is hindered by complexity um and there's a little bit of a you know you don't need to understand how this fund works just trust us and the non-transparent wrapper I, i think reinforces that a little bit and i you know how is that beneficial to the investor um not really knowing especially in a space that's already so complex how do you navigate liquid alts
1: well, I consider myself somebody who has significant expertise in this space, and I will say that whenever you hear somebody say, you don't need to understand this, that's more than likely not because the information is not available, but the person who's trying to communicate the information doesn't understand it. Um, not necessarily that the information is not available or that they're trying to hide something. I think that's true in the hedge fund world as well, having spent a long time in that space. I, I'm Yet to find a hedge fund manager that's not willing to give you insight into how they're executing their strategy. It is complex at times. Complexity has certainly been a hindrance in the adoption of alternatives since I've been involved in the space, which I started in 2007. Uh, And part of that, I think the underlying providers of alternatives, whether they be liquid or non-liquid alternatives, need to do a better job in communicating it. And advisors don't necessarily understand how to implement. And so I spend a lot of the time where I'm going out and speaking at conferences, I'm usually asked to speak about liquid alts. They have huge benefits to client portfolios and diversifications. When I came here and joined Spotlight, um... It took a little while, but we've implemented some liquid alts in our own model portfolios that once I I took the time to really sit down and really communicate and explain what these strategies are doing, what their benefits are, so people could understand them, we were able to get buy-in, implement them in the portfolio, and it has been a huge benefit to our clients. I think sometimes when something is harder to explain to a client... And you know that if they don't perform well, you'll get more questions about it. It's sometimes easier just to avoid. And that's not always the, sometimes the easy thing to do is not the best thing to do. And so having these non-transparent liquid alts, it's not that they're trying to hide anything. It's that many of these strategies are really hard to implement and give the type of transparency that has traditionally been needed in ETFs. It's just hard. Um, There is real reason for concern about front running as it pertains to these things. And some of the complexity, having the transparency is not advantageous because people don't understand it. And it's harder to explain every given trade, but ultimately having non-transparent ETFs opens the door to having more options in the space, which again, having more opportunity, more options allows for better opportunity to provide diversification benefits for the client. Mm
2: -hmm. I I don't disagree with what you're saying. I think there's definitely an opportunity in um for liquid alts and, uh, like you said, fixed income, um, in the non-transparent active space, but that's not the kinds of products we're seeing right now. We're seeing mostly just active equity strategies in, in growth and value, um, which there are dozens of transparent strategies uh, or you know, tr- transparent ETFs, uh, along the same lines. And they're not Necessarily, wowing in terms of performance. So I think it'll be interesting to see how um, how assets accumulate in those products, and if assets do accumulate in those products, maybe then it'll open the doors for liquid alt, non-transparent active ETFs, and and fixed income, non-transparent active ETFs. Because um, without those assets in the first run of products I don't think you get to the other steps that we're talking about here I would agree um well I think we're gonna unfortunately have to leave it there uh for now thank you so much uh Shauna for joining us today and having such a great conversation
1: no problem it was my my
2: pleasure Uh, So for more on on direct indexing, non-transparent ETFs or any of the topics that we spoke about today or any ETF topic or to catch up on past episodes, please visit us at ETF.com. And for more information about how to get involved in the Women in ETFs organization, please visit womeninetfs.com. You can write to us with your questions, your comments, your thoughts, your feedback at ETFworkinglunch, that's all one word, at ETF.com. On behalf of myself... Cynthia Murphy and the rest of the ETF.com team. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you next episode.